Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to Travel First with Chris Coleman and Alex First. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Travel First, where today our intrepid travel explorer, Alex First, heads off to a country of dykes. I'm talking about the Netherlands and indeed the capital thereof, Amsterdam. Greetings to you, Alex First. Today, the highways and byways and waterways indeed of Amsterdam. We will trawl them during the next few minutes at least. Anyway, we we arrived in Amsterdam, of course. We were in Copenhagen beforehand, and last week we were talking about the great service on SAS. Well, we made our way to our hotel from Amsterdam Central Railway Station. Our hotel called the Red Lion, privately owned about five or 600 metres from the Central Station, still in the name of the original owner's two families, dating back 104 years with 79 rooms, Four different types, ranging from singles to standard doubles, superior rooms and junior suites. I must admit that the staff were very, very friendly and hospitable, which is what you want when you land anywhere, because most people have travelled for, well, I suppose if you're in Europe, you might only travel for an hour or two, but you still want hospitality. It's, It's also got a couple of small conference rooms, a restaurant open seven days a week. Actually, the restaurant, Chris, is very well known in Amsterdam because it serves traditional Dutch cuisine. And what is traditional Dutch cuisine? Well, pea soup. Do you like pea soup? I love pea soup. Yeah, I don't mind it at all. Herring, asparagus and mussels. I'm not very much a fish person, I've got to say to you. I like mussels. I'm big on mussels, yeah, yeah. And, and asparagus is good fun. Herrings, yeah, yes and no, yes, yes and, and no. no. Yeah, well, mussel. well, you work out in the gym, so, yeah, you are. Oh, That's thank good. you. Yeah, look, they, they, this, this hotel, they... They also host lots of groups for sort of lunches and stuff like that because they're so well known. Most people who stay in the Red Lion stay there around about three nights. And one thing that I really liked about it, the longer you actually are there, the bigger the discount you receive. So it's kind of like frequent flyer points, but it's on accommodation. What a great idea. Mm, it, it's excellent. And due to the location of the hotel, one thing to note, really busy on weekends. So probably best to book well enough in advance to make sure that you can get a room there. By the way, the red line's just around the corner from Dam Square, D-A-M, so-called because it's the original location of the dam in the river Amstel. So right? hence the name Amsterdam. Very good, exactly. And Dam Square, it's the historical centre of Amsterdam, boasts the magnificent neoclassical royal palace, which served as the city hall from, ni- from 1655 until its conversion to a royal residence in 1808. So what's that? That's uh, 145, 153 years it served as the City Hall, the royal palace. Beside it are the 15th century Gothic church and Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. Another Madame Tussauds. Yeah, quite a few in in Europe. And, uh, I mean, we've got one in Australia. So, you know, they're around the world. It's a nice franchise. You know, would it, would it, we could we could could we franchise movies first? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Done. <laughs> in, in the square, in Darm Square, is also a white stone pillar that was erected in 1956 to memorialise the victims of the Second World War. 
talk about Amsterdam. Well, it's the capital of the Netherlands, dating back to the 12th century, when fishermen and farmers built the first houses on the river dikes. And it's a story of small settlements and a never-ending battle against the water. Early Amsterdam was constructed from three settlements that grew towards each other over the course of a few decades, and then they connected. And the first canals were dug between... 1342 and 1380. Now, See, that, that's staggering when you think about that kind of history. It is. Well, I mean, what, what are we looking at? 700 years or thereabouts. Mm. Now, okay, I, I actually don't want you to Google this. I'm going to, a question without notice. How many canals, because you talked about the dikes, how many, how many canals do you reckon there are in Amsterdam? Uh, I, I have no idea. Dozens, hundreds. Yeah, yeah 165. That's a lot. It's a lot of canals, but there's even more bridges. One thousand two hundred eighty-one bridges. Well, if you've got, if you think about it, you know, you're going to need bridges to sort of get over canals in various spots. And what did you say? One hundred and sixty-five canals. So yeah, if you if you go, if you went uh, nine bridges or eight yeah, or nine eight, bridges eight over nine each bridges. one, yeah, yeah, yeah. For each one, yeah, I was, makes sense, yeah. Uh, because otherwise, I mean, maybe you could walk on water, but most people can't. So yeah. they need to get it across. You do know, they still so. do they still use the canals as as a way to get for for your regular joes to get around the city, or or has land transport sort of supplanted that now? Look, I didn't. I wasn't there long enough to actually find that out. But okay. I, I yeah, I really don't know the answer. But about oh, just over eight hundred thousand people live in Amsterdam, and mm-hmm. and if you extend that out into the metropolitan area, the number grows to two point three million. Most of the people, though, I mean, I I would have thought that. They, they use not cars, but they use bikes because nearly 60% of the population cycle every day. Well, with that many canals, and, and in all seriousness, canals, of course, are different from rivers because canals, they are flat. There is no or very little water flow in canals. So the city itself would be largely flat. So ideal for cycling. Oh, it's wonderful. And look, the number of bikes, to give you some idea, it's fast climbing towards a million bikes. Right, I mean, bear in mind, just over 800,000 people live there, so it's kind of like more than a bike per person. That's a lot of bikes riding on dikes. Uh, yeah, yes, indeed. And, and while bicycle riding is a way of life for the Dutch and bikes and bike riders are absolutely everywhere, you know the other thing that's everywhere? Cheese shops. Cheese shops and cheese tasting. Cheese shops? Yeah, yeah, I mean... what Ble- we... blessed, blessed are the cheese makers. <laughs> yes, and what we found interesting is that the cheese is not only magnificently presented, but it's not refrigerated. Right? Okay. And yet it keeps well and tastes great. Now, go figure. Yeah, no, 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 no. No. Really? Seriously? No, you've got to get your cheese out of the fridge. I'm no, sorry. You, no, you've no, got to get your cheese out of the fridge. Absolutely not. Not when you go to Amsterdam. Living history's everywhere because it's got nearly 9,000 buildings dating back to the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, first up, we got to experience Amsterdam from the water because we undertook this eye-opening hour-long canal cruise. What a great way to see a most magnificent city. The architecture is just superb. There, there are also about 2,500 houseboats, right? These are where people live. I think that's... I'd love to live on a houseboat. I think yeah, it'd be, no, 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 more, no more mowing the lawn. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you, I just think it would be a wonderful existence. But anyway, a lot of people do, 2,500, as I say. And, like, we, I mean, many people choose to travel around on bikes, but I reckon if you can get a waterway, a, a trip on, on the water when you get there, that's probably a great introduction. I couldn't think of a better one. And in the afternoon, we then walked to the square in front of the Royal Palace 
to admire that and and to the nearby church known as the new church even though it dates back to 1410 i was about to say how new is this new church oh yeah it's, look it's only six or seven hundred years old that's yeah. all right no, i'll get them done under the trade practices act later yeah yeah exactly it housed quite a fascinating african exhibition when we were there the new church was built because at the time the old church grew too small for the expanding population so that's a reason to create a new church and these days it's mainly used as an exhibition space and hence the exhibition on Africa while we were there. Did and you get to see the old church or is the old church long gone? No, no, no. I, I, I didn't see the old church, so no, we didn't. Okay, all right. But, but I mean, this space, by the way, the, the new church is also used for organ recitals, but it's still the site of royal investitures and royal weddings. So we didn't see any of those, unfortunately. But, you know, we could have stuck around. Yeah, you might have to wait a while. Ever so slight. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> And, and then we walked around several of the picturesque little streets alongside the canals just to soak up the atmosphere. I mean, that's a, again, take a boat trip, then sort of walk along the canals. And, and it taking the ambience of Amsterdam, just absolutely lovely. We um, decided that one of the first things we wanted to do was to visit Anne Frank House for what was one of the most affecting museums that I'd ever been in. Because through her diary and photographs and recreations, and you actually see her diary, and small vignettes on film, it's the story of Anne Frank, born on the 12th of June 1929, and her Jewish family and how they lived in hiding for more than two years to avoid deportation by the Nazis during the Second World War before somebody exposed their secret. And only the father, Otto, survived. Not Anne, not her sister, not her mother. But for an adolescent to write with the clarity and conviction that Anne Frank did with such detail and gusto to see what she and her family and her father's work colleagues went through to try to keep them safe is a very, very special experience, I assure you. On many occasions, Chris, I was on the verge of tears. Mm. And, and uh, it, it's so affecting. Ultimately, of course, you, you come to the diary itself held safely behind glass and it, it's, yeah, I... That's that's quite an experience. We we spent the best part of three hours at Anne Frank House, and I reckon it's a must see experience. It's with a, it's without peer, yeah, and it's and just one of the highlights. Underscoring, you know, the the pure inhumanity that man can have to man, and 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 the tragedy underlined further because what it was was early 1945 that mm -hmm. Anne Frank was uh, yes. uh, was executed. There's no other way of putting that, mm. and World War Two only went for another few months thereafter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it certainly wasn't lost on me while I was while I was there. It's just done extraordinarily well. The the way that they've captured the stories, etc. And I, I was I was compelled to listen to everything I, it, and and just watch everything. And yeah, it, it was nice. It was nice to be there, but it was also haunting. And uh, so nice is probably the wrong word, but it, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's living history, and it's such a. I mean, you hear, I mean, you think about the world today as well and, and, and how many lives are lost in conflict, et cetera, even to this day. And what you said, man's inhumanity to man, mm. uh, it, it seems to know no bounds. And we don't seem to learn life's lessons, unfortunately. I wish we did because, you know, it takes a hard heart not to be moved by something like Anne Frank House. That evening, we um, made our way by tram to dinner at Hakima Restaurant in a street that even 30 years ago was the mainstay of the tobacco industry. So Timothy Visser, the manager there, told us the venue that's now been operating as a restaurant for 11 years used to be the place where Dutch wholesalers 
would gather from all over Holland to inspect tobacco leaves because the panels on the ceiling were glass and there was lots of natural light. They still have this massive safe from those days when it was you know, the mainstay of the tobacco industry onto which is inscribed the fact that they were the official suppliers of tobacco to the king and queen of the Netherlands. I've not actually seen a safe quite so big and quite so thick. The backdrop to this restaurant, Hakima, it seats 360 people. That's interesting too. The walls are filled with 2,800 wine bottles, which the manager, Timothy, assures me is not just about aesthetics, but it's about soundproofing. Are they full or empty? Uh, I actually didn't check. <laughs> I, presu I presumed they were full. I mean, I really do, but, but maybe they weren't. I, I really didn't check. In any case, the effect certainly positive. It looks great. Really, really looks good. The restaurant installed a new grill uh, not so long ago, and that adds a special charcoal grill flavour to the food, and, and my wife can attest to that because she had a ribeye steak, and uh, she said, wow. Uh, more than that, the meat seems to be extra juicy with that new grill. So mm -hmm. apart from steaks, they serve a lot of fish, in particular fresh tuna and shellfish and clams and the like. I had pasta with vegetables. It was just as I liked it, so it was really good. And they've got a, a relatively new chef who joined them well, when we went there, he'd only been there for five months. He's now been there for about 18, slowly adapting the kitchen to his way of cooking. He's a big name in the Netherlands. His name is Barry Back, B-A-C-K. He's worked at a number of exclusive restaurants. He looked after the Dutch athletes at the London Olympic Games. Well, there you go. That's so, a recommendation. Yeah. yeah, it's a little bit of a trivia for you at the Hakima restaurant. So, you know, that was, that was good stuff. And there's also a sister restaurant called Anna in the red light district of Amsterdam. And Timothy tells me the food's fancy there but not expensive. So that was our first evening meal at a Hakima restaurant. Mm -hmm. The following morning, we walked past the Amsterdam Museum to a pretty circular courtyard that's home to only women. It's very picturesque. It's got a church as its centrepiece. So that was that was rather unusual. And then, then we caught a tram to this spectacular now. You're going to you remember last week we were talking about who won the award for 2015 Museum of the Year? Yes. And it was the Rijksmuseum. There we go. So you went to the Rijksmuseum, the 2015 European Museum of the Year? Exactly, where we spent the next four and a half hours. Could easily have spent a couple of days there. There is so, so much to see. That's is... the love-hate thing about museums, isn't oh, it? Isn't it ever? The iconic Museum of the Netherlands. The building which houses the museum combines Gothic and Renaissance styles. Work started on it in 1876, officially opened in July 1885. I reckon that's relatively short, isn't it? That's it was only nine bad. years. Yes, I mean, where, where, where's that church in Spain they've been building for how many hundred? <laughs> and it's still going. And it's still going, exactly. So when you visit the Rijksmuseum, you journey through time and beauty. 80 galleries over four floors, 8,000 objects tell the story of 800 years of Dutch art and history in chronological order from the Middle Ages until today. And there's Private... so much of it too, so oh. much art, so much history. Well, in 2014, there was a record 2.5 million visitors. Paintings and prints and drawings and photographs, silver, gold, porcelain, glassware, furniture, jewellery, Sumptuous, magnificent pieces, many of them. The most famous painting housed at the Rijksmuseum is the priceless Rembrandt, The Night Watch, where the Dutch master's use of light and shade, specifically illumination of the central figures, was an artistic landmark. 
and a special gallery of honour has been created by the architects who renovated and refurbished the museum over a decade before it reopened in April 2013. That gallery leads visitors to the Rijksmuseum's pride and joy, the painting that I just spoke about. So you get through the Gallery of Honour to the Night Watch. And in the same area on the second floor are three works by Vermeer, including the remarkably detailed painting Milkmaid. And you get an audio guide that gives you detailed information about the major exhibits. But there's also highly focused, written, illustrated, laminated guides to several of the works in the Gallery of Honour. I thought that was a tremendous aid to getting a deeper understanding of the works because, you know, you, could, you can just sort of cruise past or you can really sort of take it in. And the longer you spend there, obviously, the more you're probably going to get out of the experience. We then inspected the rest of the exhibits on the second floor. We then moved down to the first floor, focused on the largest painting in the museum, the victory at Waterloo that Napoleon lost to the Duke of Wellington. And it is a massive, massive painting. Also an ornate box there containing two pistols thought to belong to Napoleon. And we then moved through the rest of the museum before rushing to the Van Gogh Museum nearby. So we'd just done four and a half hours there. Then we went to the Van Gogh Museum which houses the largest collection of paintings in the world by the Dutch master, including many self-portraits, sunflowers, the potato eaters and the yellow house. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the museum closed at five. And after that, we went to another museum, <laughs> the Museum of Modern Art. And there we saw works by Picasso, Cezanne, Monet, Van Gogh, Marc Chagall, Jackson Pollock and other luminaries in the art world. Tell you what, and, and we only had an hour. And and when we so we were we were three museums in six and a half hours. That's not bad. Hey, I, 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 you know this. You've raised something interesting there. When you get somewhere, and you get to a a, a a tourist destination that is normally going to take more time than they're open for for you to get through. Mm -hmm. uh, because this happened to us in San Diego, and I, I mentioned this uh, because it, it was interesting. We got to San Diego, we got to the, the USS Midway, uh, uh, the, the aircraft carrier, which has now been turned into a museum. Yes. Now, we got there and they said, look, you haven't got enough time, really, to get around the whole thing today. And I said, you don't know how fast I can move. Uh, but <laughs> they, they said, what we do, because we get so many people who don't see enough on the first day, on your way out, if you like, you can get your ticket stamped and you can come back tomorrow at no additional charge. Now, I, I, it's the first place, it's the first museum, and I've been to a lot of them, it's the first museum I've ever been to that does something like that. Isn't that a great idea? Oh, I think it's terrific. And I, I'm sure there are others that do it, but it's, it's, it's marvellous because, yeah, you do feel it, at times that you are time poor, no question about it at all. And it depends on how many days you've got in any places. We, we had, again, limited time in Amsterdam, so we, we, we had to sort of make sure we got through as much as we possibly could. And then we usually try and ask, well, where are the highlights? What should we see? And, I mean, the, the staff are very, very helpful in that regard. But um, we that after being all museumed out that day, we had dinner at an outstanding fish restaurant which serves fresh fish daily called Lucius, which the year we were there, which was 2015, celebrated its 40th anniversary. And Jeffrey, the manager, had been there for 35 years. Can you imagine that in the one restaurant? He had four stints at the restaurant. And in 2014, Lucius was voted number one restaurant in Amsterdam for its Dover sole. Wow. And I, I, I said to you, I don't have much delights in fish. I did have a large 600-gram serving 
which I savoured with Nadine, and it was melt-in-your-mouth magnificent. It really lived. I can understand why it won the award. I'm not a big fish person, but this was great. Really, really great. And by the way, Lucius is named after the Latin word for a predatory fish, the pike or pike perch. The original owner sold it to one of his employees about 10 years ago. So, you know, I think that's a very nice thing to do. Very, very, very popular. So you better book a day or two in advance. They're open seven days a week from five o'clock to midnight, seats 84 people. And by the way, Nadine also had oysters for starters and a glorious tangerine cream, white chocolate and macaroon dessert. Mm-hmm. So oh, my, my mouth's watering. I've got, it, I can't say anything. My mouth's watering too it much. Was just, it was delish. And as I say, I, you know what? I like fish that don't taste fishy, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, no, well, I mean, it, I, I, I know, I know, you're not a big, you're not a big seafood eater. I no, get I'm that. No, yeah. I'm not. But, but I really, seriously, I'm not just saying this. I loved the Dover sole. It was absolutely magnificent. Really, really strong. And but there are a lot of great, there are a lot of seafood aficionados out there. Uh, even if you're not, it's absolutely worth going to Lucius. Really, really enjoyed it. The um, the following morning, we, I mean, we were actually we sent a bit of stuff back to Australia and. This is something to be aware of. It depends on which European city you go to as to the price that you're going to be charged. And there can be quite some differential. And some places they charge you by the kilo. Others you can get sort of a, if you're more than 10 and less than 20 kind of thing. So just be be aware because, you know, you build up stuff. And it, we were away for eight weeks, Chris. So, you know, if you're buying stuff, it's inevitable you're going to have to send it back. You might even want to do before you travel, you might want to sort of Google and find out the, the price of mm. I found generally we were trying to we were trying to sort of gather about twenty kilo parcels and send them back because we found that to be most cost effective. I, I would also add, and I've just been reading in one of the papers in recent days uh, about uh, people sending stuff back to Australia from Italy. I would yes. not recommend posting anything from Italy going from now. Look, I have no personal experience on this. I'm just going from stuff some stuff that's been in the Sydney Morning Herald in recent times that. Um, Items posted from Italy to Australia can take a very long time. Indeed, uh, may not arrive at all. So, wow. yeah, well, just, okay. just something well, we, to throw into the mix there. Well, we we packed 18 kilos, right? We sent 18 kilos back to Australia from Amsterdam and we put it into this large, long, rectangular cardboard box. With insurance, it cost us about $180. So I, I thought that was quite reasonable, to be honest. It's, it's certainly a lot cheaper than excess baggage on an aeroplane. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 18 kilos, it's, that's kind of like a suitcase, isn't it? So 180 bucks, I thought that, and, and arrived, you know, it was quite timely. There was no issues. That afternoon, we, we caught it. So we, we sort of took all this stuff to the post office. That took quite a bit of time, et cetera. That afternoon, we caught a train from Amsterdam to Harlem, H-A-A-R-L-E-M, and we paid five euros, sort of 10 cents each for the 20-minute 20-kilometre rail journey. I thought that was extraordinary, right? So uh, it, it, it was really, you know, very, very cheap. Um, located on the... That's about $10, not 10... I said 10, 5... Uh, it was 5 euros. No, it was, it was less than $10 for the 20-minute, 20 20-kilometre 20 rail journey. Located on the River Sparn, S-P-A-A-R-N-E, population of about 150,000, Harlem's the capital of the province of North Holland. And it's been the historical centre of the tulip bulb growing district for centuries. And it bears the nickname of Flower City. The New York neighbourhood, by the way, of Harlem in Manhattan was founded by Dutch settlers in the 17th century. 
and was originally called New Harlem. There you go. So you've got Harlem in Amsterdam or near Amsterdam and you've got Harlem in New York. And the name apparently means wooden place on high sandy soil. It was first mentioned in the 10th century, became a fortified town by the 12th century, then a residence of the Counts of Holland. And at the end of the Middle Ages, Harlem was a flourishing city with a large textile industry. It also had shipyards and beer breweries. Now it's just this wonderfully preserved city dating mostly from the 17th century. Centre certainly compact enough to comfortably walk around. The focal point is the market square where you find buildings like the Renaissance style town hall, the old meat market, the old fish market, the 13th century city guards headquarters and the Gothic style St Barbo's Church named after its patron saint who died in the year 653. Oh, jeez, another epic yeah. piece of history. Well, the church was built from 1370 to 1538, so they took their, their precious time about that, didn't they? 1370 to 1538. And the church and the tower stand 76 metres tall. Interestingly, the floor of the church consists entirely of gravestones. Okay. Uh, of which there are about 1,500, the oldest dating back to the 15th century. Hmm. So at 4.15 in the afternoon, we walked into the Golden Tulip Lion Door, a hotel established about the year 1810, just a couple of hundred metres from the Central Railway Station in Harlem, which first opened in 1838 to accommodate the passengers of the first railway in the Netherlands. The building, by the way, where we arrived dates back to 1908. The Golden Tulip Lion Door, where we were staying, three floors, 34 rooms, including a couple of junior suites. It's also got three meeting rooms. It accommodates, they accommodate 25, 50 and 140 people, respectively. And the larger and smaller rooms can be joined to accommodate a conference of, of a couple of hundred. The restaurant serves breakfast, doubles as a lounge area during the day, a bar at night serving drinks and sandwiches and snacks. We had a tour guide who was there to meet us and took us on an hour and a half walking tour of Harlem, and I've already mentioned it's got about 150,000 residents in town. It was gently paced, quite a contrast to the hustle and bustle of Amsterdam. Heavy fog had descended on Harlem by the time we arrived, so it gave the town quite a surreal feel. We, we felt like we were stepping back in time. Again, the great architecture in the old town made an immediate and positive impression. It's got loads of charm. It, it's, it's really quite different. So it's amazing, 20 kilometres away from Amsterdam and yet a totally different feel. So... From the railway station and city hall to a, a white drawbridge dating back to the 16th century to magnificently manicured residences just for elderly women to a rebuilt and stately windmill and the churches and monuments, like Amsterdam, Harlem also has canals. And incidentally, I, I've spoken now a couple of times about women's residences. These are almshouses, A-L-M-S, almshouses, so picturesque and tranquil they date back centuries, and although now very, very fashionable, they were originally designed to bring comfort to the poor. And the first of them was established in the 12th century. Later, church councils established arms houses because they considered it their religious responsibility to provide a form of housing for the needy. So that's the history of almshouses. The, early in the evening, we made our way to one of the best restaurants in town called Zudam, Z-U-I-D-A-M. It started up about five or six years ago, on the site of an old shipyard by that name, right next to the one, one of the canals in town, owned by a couple of men called Jan and Nico. Now, amazingly, 
They are the same names, Jan and Nico, as those of the original owners of the shipyard that started in 1915. Oh, now, there's a coincidence for you. That's extraordinary. And they didn't change their names. They're their real names. Zidane offers international cuisine. I spoke with the manager, John, who had his own restaurant in Harlem for 12 years, and now he's managing this one. Jan, one of the owners of Zudam, happens to be his best mate. And it seats 60 inside, 40 downstairs and 20 upstairs, and a further 90 outside in summer. Now, it's situated within metres of the large windmill called the Adrian Windmill, originally built in 1778 on the foundations of an ancient defensive tower near the centre of town that was rebuilt by the municipality recently after it was burnt down in 1932. And in summer... You can imagine it's one of the best spots in town to just sit, watch the world go by. The terrace, there's a terrace around the restaurant which allows patrons to enjoy the sun throughout the entire day. Passing boats often more, so their captains can stop, have a drink, something to eat at Zudam. Otherwise, Zudam staff bring food and drink to them on their vessels. And it's apparently the only restaurant in Harlem to be able to do that. So if you own a boat, if you want to moor it, you can, and you can get your feed there as well. So that's Zudam. And uh, my wife, well, grilled steak with winter vegetables and a mousseline of potatoes. I had a sea brim. See, I, I was getting to my seafood now. By you really were getting into this seafood. Well, yeah, sea brim, a mixed vegetable grill with roast potatoes, and very, very nice indeed. And by the way, uh, my wife had to have a dessert of chocolate terrine with white chocolate mousse, brandied cherries, and eggnog liqueur. Oh, she said stop it was to die for. Stop it. Yes, very, very nice. So, we had a, a lightning quick breakfast at the hotel the next morning. We were only there for uh, a, sort of a, a day, and we caught the 8:32 local train from Harlem to Amsterdam. And then we picked up, we left some uh, baggage at the Red Line in Amsterdam. We collected a couple of large suitcases we'd, we'd left there, wheeled them back to Amsterdam Central Station. And next up was the three-hour, 19-minute trip to Brussels by Rail Europe. So go to raileurope.com.au by Eurail. So we'll talk about Brussels next week. And we'll also talk about Bruges. That is it for this episode of Travel First, Chris. Always amazes me, Alex, every time we do it. And I know you've had a lot of rail travel in Europe, but when you say, you know, the three-hour trip and next week we'll talk about being in a completely different country, wouldn't it be great if we could do that here, even if it was just between states? But that's probably a discussion for another day. Well, eventually there will be fast rail, and whether that will be in our lifetime, though, is a matter of conjecture. Put your analyst on danger money, baby. We'll catch you next week, Alex. Good on you, Chris. Cheers. That's Alex First. I'm Chris Coleman. Travel First, back next week. You've been listening to Travel First. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the full podcast at Audioboom, Stitcher and iTunes or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.